This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're tuned in to the show that brings you closer to the people and places of our capital city. The Rimba Project is University Malaya's outreach program that aims to educate the public about our urban ecology and biodiversity. They have organized many activities to increase our awareness of our biodiversity and through their offshoot program called Urban Biodiversity Initiative, they have widened that scope beyond their campus. They've been on BFM before to share the stories of their efforts, so for this particular episode on the show, we're going to be honing in on the relationship between urban spaces and its non-human occupants. Joining me for this conversation are Terry Gazigo and Shuhada Sapno. So um, I did my bachelor degree in UM in ecology and biodiversity, majored in zoology. So there's that. And then my interest in wildlife pretty much grow throughout my undergraduate days, lah. And also I was the volunteer for the Rimba project since 2014. So I've been volunteering throughout my undergraduate days. And yeah, uh, my interest in wildlife pretty much range from. Papito fauna, which is learning on reptiles and amphibians, to birds, and then slowly, somehow, I made my way to studying animal behavior, specifically on the dusky leaf monkey in Penang with Langer Project Penang um, from USF University Science Major. And then now, I myself kind of turned into the amphibian, so I'm doing my postgraduate um, in UM. Doing my master's degree in performing arts in drama at the drama department at Cultural Center, and also um, working as a project officer for the Rimba project. I, I like that, that tangent, the slight tangent. That's kind of interesting. Can you explain a bit why did you decide to, I guess, venture into a different kind of studies? Um, yeah, I, I get this question a lot every single time somebody asks me this. <laughs> so um, I, I uh, it's, it's the interest lah. Like, I, I'm, I'm interested in both. So I I always you know like I don't want to like one day end up like just being in the science field or one day just end up being in the drama field. So like where can I like make this two you know cross the interdisciplinary? Yeah lah there. So um I don't know why the the jump, but I see I see it more as a continuation from what I did. I did not venture completely out. I did not I did not like went off track. So uh, my research is on environmental education. That's what I've gained throughout my during my undergraduate days. So I've I've gained the interest in um, environmental education. So I'm doing the research in that on urban biodiversity using drama techniques. Ooh, interesting. All okay. right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about you, Terry? Can you introduce yourself a bit? My name is Terry Gazigo. I'm an ecologist. Um, I'm just about to finish my PhD in uh, dung beetle ecology. Um, it's a very esoteric uh, field. Um, but currently, I am working as uh, the main managing partner for the Urban Biodiversity Initiative. Um, so right now, I do a lot of uh, consulting and environmental education programs for the public. All right. Okay. So uh, for those who are not familiar with the Rimba Project, maybe you guys can help explain what it is. Um, so the Rimba Project, we are a living lab which is jointly funded by the Deputy Vice-Chancellor under the Research and Innovation and also the Deputy Vice-Chancellor um, Development with a mission to protect and promote UM's biodiversity. Um, we address issues on urban conservation and we're based in Rimba Elmo Botanic Garden. 
Sorry, my Ilmo Botanic Garden is your, I guess, lab. We are a living lab, so we are pretty much everywhere. <laughs> um, it's it's not we don't have we don't do work in a lab, so um, it's just like a space for us to use. Like we run activities like nature education, like guided walks. So we gather them here. Like we have our things, do our meetings and everything here. Um, apart from the Rimba project, there's also uh, an offshoot initiative called the Urban Biodiversity Initiative, right? Uh, can you tell me more about that? Okay, so the Urban Biodiversity Initiative was uh, founded by the ex-Rimba project people. After a while, we realized that there are a lot of issues that just can't be done within the campus. Uh, there are some things that we have to go beyond the campus to solve. And so we started a social enterprise um, which we call the Urban Biodiversity Initiative, or UBI for short. And what we do is try to bring what we learned from these first years of working with Rimba Project into a wider space, into the entire Greater KL uh, region. So um, among the projects that you guys have done included um, exploring Section 12 in PJ, right? Uh, what have you observed regarding the biodiversity of these areas? Yeah, so the Section 12 was a project under the Rimba project. It was in 2014-2015. So the project was, um, we went in to basically do a survey, a biodiversity survey within the area. So we found like pretty much a lot of findings of animals and plants that we never thought we could, you know, discover in the city. So... Um... Yeah, for the Section 12 project, so basically what happened was that there were a bunch of bungalows which were abandoned uh, by the university. They used to be former staff quarters, but they were abandoned. So um, the plan was actually to build a private hospital there. But before they wanted to demolish all that, they wanted to at least record what biodiversity was there. And so it became a very uh, interesting study on how can our urban spaces recover in terms of nature. And when we first went in, we didn't really know what to expect, but over the a few weeks of observation, we started to find uh, all sorts of animals. There were fireflies, which had recolonized the place. There were uh, eagles. Uh, there was a lot of aquatic life as well. Uh, well, semi-aquatic life like frogs and all that. Um, and also a lot of insect life, which they managed to move in within the last... The, few years in which that place was abandoned. Mm, interesting. Um, maybe a bit of a naive question, but um, do this, I guess, uh, wildlife ended up occupying the space only because it was abandoned? Okay, I think the, the interesting thing about it was, I would say it wasn't because it was abandoned, but it's because of what grew there. So if there's somebody uh, still there, usually they would do like yard maintenance, they would clean up all the sumar and all that. Mm. And that reduces the amount of space and resources for animals. It reduces the one habitat available for animals. So in some ways, our own landscaping practices are what actually reduces the biodiversity. Not so much that uh, we cannot live with biodiversity. Another thing about the place is that it has a lot of is older development. So the plants that were planted before that tended to be more like fruit trees, um, a lot more native plants as opposed to like the more what you get in modern developments. So that may also have contributed to uh, the amount of habitat available for the animals to, to come into. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Uh, what do you mean by native plants? 
how would you describe native plants to a lay person? Okay, so uh, a native plant is a plant which is naturally found in our ecosystem. Um, so I'll give you an example. Uh, banana trees are native plants. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, I would say, let's say something like a rubber tree or uh, oil palm, those are actually brought in from South America and Africa, respectively. Okay, so based on that, what I'm curious to know is that um, what 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 was the method of your observation there? Um, I guess it probably requires a bit of time. So when you were there, like, was it just uh, like a you know, like a literal observation, or do you guys also have to conduct tests and research to find out the kind of, I guess, biodiversity that's available there? So there are two. Um, there's the the one for the botany for the trees and for the animals. So for the trees, we did tree mapping. So we um, went in and then helped identify the trees around the area. And then we measured the what you call circumference of the tree and also used GPS to tag, uh, what you call map the tree. There's that. And then there's also for animals, we during that time, we did a lot of uh, catching. Like we, we catch and release, the catch and release method. So like example, uh, butterflies, we catch. We had expert like Terry. Terry was on board and this other uh, colleague of mine, Sofwan, who is great at identifying butterflies. So he also helped to identify butterflies, note it down and then released it. Lah. And then we also took uh, photographs, lah, document it through photography. So we did take a lot of photographs of animals. The field work, we did both day and night. So we had the day field work and night field work because um, some animals, they came out like really early in the days, uh, in, in daytime, like uh, insects and birds, uh, like butterflies. Uh, you can find it like earlier in the day. And then um, at night also, we went in for the nocturnal animals, like frogs. There's this also, there's a bird that, a uh, nocturnal bird called the nightjar, the large-tailed nightjar. You were stopped by the police a few times too because you know, you're a bunch of people just wandering around at night. Yeah, we were like going in the longkang in the middle of uh, at night, you know, and people get curious like what are these people doing in the longkang? You know, neighborhood kind of thing. The police came and yeah, I had to Okay, that's interesting. Uh, let's let's expand on that. I think we sometimes compartmentalize our understanding of urban spaces and nature um, as two separate entities, right? Uh, when the fact of the matter is, I guess they do coexist. Um, and perhaps I think we should pay more attention to the kind of um, biodiversity in our urban spaces, especially, right? I think because sometimes it is expected of us to go to a space like I guess Rimba Ilmu or Lake Gardens, perhaps to to observe the nature. But do you think that the observation of um, nature and especially biodiversity should also be done in like literal urban spaces in concrete jungle and and what what are the things that we can observe there just to expand on the kind of understanding that we have towards biodiversity urban biodiversity especially here okay uh, one thing about this separation of nature and culture in malaysia actually is a is a very recent thing if you look at our traditional cultures you see that actually a lot of people use the nature around them in fact, a lot of our, our traditional culture is based around uh, the use of nature. Uh, for example, if like during Hari Raya, you weave ketupat. So in order to do that, you need to have a coconut tree next, near you. You want to make ketupat palas, you need to have a palas plant next, near you. So a lot of these cultural things are based around using the nature around you. So there is actually 
no sharp separation between uh, nature and culture traditionally in Malaysia. It's actually a very, very recent thing when people have started moving into urban spaces. We've adopted more of a separation in an attempt to achieve this uh, modernity in some ways. So um, in many ways, I think that looking at urban biodiversity is more of also a type of rediscovery. We need to relook at what environmental things make up our identity. And by doing so, also we can make more space for not just humans, but also for the animals and the wildlife around us. That was Terry Gazigo and he's joined by Shwada Sapno and they're the individuals behind Urban Biodiversity Initiative or UBI and the Rimba Project and we've been talking about the relationship between urban spaces and its biodiversity. We're going for a short break. Stay tuned. I'm Hanif Baharuddin and this is I Love KL on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I'm Hanif Baharuddin, and this week I'm joined by the folks behind Urban Biodiversity Initiative and the Rimba Project, Shuhada Sapno and Terry Gazigo. In the first part of the show, Terry and Shuhada have shared the kind of research that they've done with the Rimba Project and UBI. Now we're going to wonder whether the public should adopt a different kind of thinking when it comes to understanding our urban spaces and nature. I guess to a certain extent, there is a consciousness of creating um, green areas around the city, right? But sometimes the, I guess the separation doesn't have to be that literal in that sense. Uh, is that something that you guys think it makes sense if, if, if I were to say that? That's the thing about uh, a lot of... So the, the popular imagination of wildlife is a very large animal. So you consider things like elephants, tigers and all that are wildlife. But if you were to actually look at animals in general, one in four of animals is a beetle. So in actual fact, a majority of animal species are actually very small. In fact, large animal species only probably make up 1% of the available biodiversity. So this idea that we need very large green spaces, uh, you don't really need that. In fact, many animals can survive in even within a garden environment provided that there is enough habitat and resources for them. Mm. Yeah, uh, speaking of like, I think observing our space and thinking about the wildlife that do exist uh, around us, um, again, another simplistic example, but do you consider like, for example, chicha, like a gecko, right? You know, roaming around in our house as, you know, a part of, you know, the kind of biodiversity that we have that we might, I guess, not realize. Yeah, actually, um, so did you know that actually the chicha that you find in your house is not just a single species. It's actually four species. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Explain. <laughs> so uh, there are actually four species of chicha which are commonly found in households. They range from spiny tail geckos, which are the, they have a bit of spines on their tails, or they have, there are the four-toed geckos, which have less, they have one less toe. If you like, can sit down and count the toes on your geckos, you might be able to see that. <laughs> mm. Um, but in general, um, there's actually a lot more biodiversity around us than we actually realize. And a lot of these can coexist with us. Uh, so this, like I say, four species are the commonly found species. If you live a bit closer to like a forest, you might also be able to get uh, forest species which come a bit closer to you to also feed on like the insects which are attracted to your house. Mm. So 
it's very important to see that there's always a lot of space for biodiversity, even within our living space. And there's actually a lot more biodiversity available than we realize. Yeah. And the thing about um, this kind of biodiversity is that it is natural, right? But again, some of us may not be as comfortable. For example, you know, having geckos, chicha in our houses, um, you know, seeing beetles, because I do get beetles uh, in my room sometimes in my house, uh, and I live on the fourth floor. I, and I always wonder, like, why is there like a beetle here? But yeah, what, what's the attitude I think people in general should have with regard to, I guess, seeing these things? Like, um, because sometimes some people are a bit less comfortable with, with these things, and they tend to, I guess, try their best to to cordon off their space, right, from these things, right? Um, so is that like a right way or right attitude to adopt when it comes to um, not only recognizing, but I guess um, appreciating and engaging with, with the kind of biodiversity that we have, uh, especially in urban areas? Okay, so usually these types of conflicts happen when uh, you, so let's, for example, the chicha, um, they are there because you're creating food for them by attracting animals, using your lights, you know, when you turn on the light, it attracts insects and you're creating habitat for them because uh, if your house, sometimes there cracks or there's a space between your cupboard and the wall. So that's their natural habitat, the small crack areas. So you're inadvertently creating the habitat to have chicha. And if you can understand actually what attracts, what are the requirements of a chicha, you can try to adapt your own space so it doesn't have those things if you're not a fan of them. Mm. So on the same principles, let's say uh, if there's an animal that which you do like, like say a bird or something, uh, maybe you could plant plants which uh, provide food for the birds or you could allow some grass to grow so they can build their nests using the grass. So uh, these are, it's probably a better way of interacting with animals by understanding habitats and understanding, in general, understanding these animals really erodes a lot of the fear or the discomfort of God being near these animals. Yeah, and, and for now, we're still talking on like a very granular personal level, right? In personal spaces, uh, we're still, I guess, focusing on personal space. What about, what about you know, um, the larger space, I guess, communal spaces? Um, um, what are the kind of things that I think uh, people can, you know, start observing a lot more when it comes to, I guess, spaces uh, in urban areas, like, for example, alleyways, um, public parks even, um, you know? the kind of things that they can be aware of or they can try and, I guess, uh, be more observant of in the future when they, for example, go to a playground near near their housing area or even, you know, that, that alleyway uh, in the city, things like that? Okay, so you might not realize this, but even in, like, very, very urban areas, let's say you walk down KL, if you look at, like, the bases of the buildings and all the cracks, there's a lot of uh, plant life that grows there too. So... Sometimes just stopping and being more observant about it uh, really helps for you to appreciate uh, what type of diversity is there. We actually recently did this uh, wildflower illustration workshop. Yeah, so this workshop was um, held during Malaysia Day. So it's a really interesting way to look at the plants that's living here in Malaysia right under our noses that we don't, we don't really realize. So these wildflowers are, um, yeah, people re- normally see them as weeds call them as weeds, but we, we call them wildflowers. Lah. They're, they're living species. <laughs> yeah, so um, the workshop was, um, we collaborated with uh, an artist. Uh, her name's Sharifah Nadira. So it's not just an illustration workshop where a participant can go in and just learn how to draw flowers. 
So we, we added in the educational aspect to it. So the first part of the workshop itself, um, we had an ecologist, which is Terry, who um, did like a small walk around the neighborhood to look at the wildflowers, like just by the long gang, by the drains. Yeah, so uh, just, uh, just by teaching these participants, you know, which part of these flowers are the sepals and the petals and what are composite flowers and and they were they were amazed by all those, you know. They, we, one of them even said, "Like, why did we learn this in school?" Yeah. So uh, it's it's you know things that is just very close to us, but we never realize, we never bother about them. And that part, that session, that first session itself, has opened up their eyes to um, be more observant, not just to you know be more observant by looking at the ground and like knowing how to identify the plants, but also to watch it closer, like the the shapes and structures of the plants and how pollinators you know are interacting with it like these wildflowers exist and it attracts pollinators like the bees and the butterflies yeah so that's that's the first really eye-opening part of the session and then it, uh, we moved on to the um, uh, we forage for the the specimens so we forage and, and look at pick up some flowers lah and then we study the flowers up close after that. So uh, looking at closely, uh, using a magnifying glass and look at it, uh, looking at it up closely, looking at the leaf structures, the leaf position. Um, and then Sharifa, she took over and ran the illustration session after that. So instead of just, you know, going in to learn how to draw, you, you, you get both. You get the educational aspect and also like brushing up your skill on drawing. Hmm. I guess, I guess that's a good combo, and I think you highlighted um, an important part with regard to biodiversity. I think a lot of people, um, it is still a form of uh, learning, right? Uh, because I think sometimes we we tend to take for granted the kind of biodiversity that exists uh, in in our society uh, around us. Um, so I guess what you guys do is a lot of that, right? A lot of educating the public or making them more aware of the kind of biodiversity that exists uh, around us, right? Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Ubi is a social enterprise. Um, actually, uh, most of our income comes in from uh, doing these type of programs. We do like classes for children. We do uh, workshops for adults. So it's this process of rediscovering uh, nature around us. Yeah, that's our main business at the moment. And we find that there's actually a lot of interest. It's just that a lot of people just aren't aware that it's there. And yeah. once they do find out that it's there, uh, yeah, they're suddenly just amazed by what they can see. Yeah, and I guess most importantly, um, the aspect of learning um, about our biodiversity also requires us to, I guess, go out and experience these things, right? It's not just limited to classrooms and, I guess, books. You you need to actually go out and observe your surroundings to that extent, right? Yeah, so a lot of this has to be very experiential. You can't just sit down in a room. And, you know, it's not a classroom activity. You really have to go out and look for what's around you. And also uh, to add to that, we also like another way that we do is by approaching um, a different group of people to and collaborating it with them. So like how during uh, for this workshop, wildflower workshop, we collaborated with artists. So that's what we one of the things that we went for. So besides collaborating with artists, we we are also collaborating with people from like the CMIS, the Center for Malaysian Indigenous Studies, and just very open to just you know uh yeah collaborating with people from different backgrounds 
Yeah, like um, so we also collaborating with uh, chefs, we're collaborating with artists, uh, with theater people, the activists, the indigenous people. So uh, there's a lot of different groups that we can work with, and it's very important when you're communicating. This is a science communication problem, uh, in which you can't just talk about the science. You need to also look at the message as well and the messaging as well. We don't adopt a very scientific approach when we are teaching. Especially for my university, because it's such a, it can be a very complicated subject if you just look at the science of it. But if you get the message right, it can be understood by almost anyone. Yeah, it is important to collaborate with others if you want to democratize and also, I don't want to simplify. It's a fair word, but I guess to simplify science uh, for for the masses, right? Yeah, that that is a really big problem with a lot of the science which occurs in in Malaysia that. The information is all there. The problem is that it is uh, written or distributed in a very academic way. So it tends to be only available to certain circles. And uh, a lot of the work that we do is actually uh, taking this and translating it into something that can be understood by the general public. Um, speaking about your initiative being a very uh, experiential one, uh, we're in the midst of pandemic and while the, I guess, MCO has ended like months ago, uh, we're still in the recovery phase. Uh, how did this impact the kind of work you guys are doing with Ubi or even the Rimba project? Well, uh, <laughs> we're, we're still in the recovery type space too right now. Um, so we are still recovering from the effects of the MCO. Uh, yeah, we couldn't run a lot of projects, but the MCO also spurred us to move into more digital spaces. Yeah. So. We started publishing more on our website. We started engaging more on social media. We're looking into more video production now as well. So in a way, it's pushed us in a different direction to spread this message too. Mm. But are you guys planning to adopt the new normal and still uh, go out there and you know bring back the experiential experience to the public? Yeah, um, actually we've already started again. Uh, just just take some time to get up to steam. Uh, but even before the MCO, we tended to have smaller classes because that's the time when everyone can see, can just like gather around and see the animals or see the plants. So we don't really have much problem with SOP because we generally focus on small classes even before the MCO. Okay. Um, a bit of a random question. Uh, the more reflective segment of the society have said that the lockdown is a blessing in disguise as it allows... Uh, for the environment to quote unquote take a break, right? Uh, is this something that you guys think about in, in what you do? And is there like some truth to, to that? Like we know whether one way or another we, we should allow the environment to maybe relax, and, you know, take a break? Yeah, in many ways, when you went out after the MCO, uh, a lot of the grass was still uncut. Uh, you could see butterflies all around, bees all around, wildflowers were growing where they used just to be lawns. So the lack of this kind of manicured landscaping really helped a lot with the recovery of a lot of wildlife or the reintroduction of a lot of wildlife into our, even our small urban spaces here. But, you know, since the MCO ended, basically gone back to normal uh, business as usual, people are polluting the rivers, people are chopping down the grass, you know. I, I would say that the recovery has kind of put us back to square one. Yeah, like another another thing was also like uh like how wildlife uh, got got comfortable to you know come out to venture out more. Even the like primates, for example, from what I've heard from uh, our previous talk with uh, Jolene from Langro Project Penang, 
So during MCO, what happened was the like the roads were empty, so there there were no cars. So wildlife were happy to just cross, because uh, habitat fragmentation happened. You know when when uh, a, a road just crossed to a forest, so um, wildlife were like happily crossing the road, going from one place to another. And then once uh, MCO has lifted for a bit and cars started driving, so there were there were cases again lah when um, road kills happen. So you, you can see lah the the. The difference there is this gonna be a form of a lesson that we can learn from i guess to an extent uh, especially because we had that that phase where you know we observe new things uh, you know wildlife the reclaiming gas spaces perhaps so will this experience be used to think about biodiversity in a different way moving forward because i understand that there is a need to uh, negotiate our relationship with the environment and biodiversity as well, right? Because um, Terry, you, you've used the word manicured landscape a lot. And I think landscaping is, is a big thing uh, among us, right? I, I think whether for aesthetic reason or for hygienic reasons or whatever. So, so I guess human beings do have that perception or those things that they have to think about. But at the same time, is there, you know, anything that we can learn moving forward to reconcile that relationship? I think the biggest problem between us and the relationship between us and the nature around us is very much a cultural problem and that's where you get to the limits of science it's something that uh, a scientist can't actually tackle alone it's something that you have to tackle by looking at both the cultural stakes which has created this this issue and also the be able to communicate to people how to overcome it so i would say that the the main issue with our landscapes is the fact that they tend to follow a very colonized model I would say. So it's very industrial. It tends to use a lot of exotic plants. It's very human-centric as opposed to trying to uh, live with nature. And all of these point back to very much social issues, uh, very much uh, cultural issues. So I think if you ask me, the way forward is actually to for example, when we had that MCO, people became a bit more aware of, you know, planting your own food, of types of animals, of plants which come out when you just leave the ground alone. And actually, a lot of those are also edible if you knew what you were looking for. So in many ways, uh, perhaps the way forward is also to take a step back and, you know, look at different ways of developing. Um, now, in the scientific literature, it's a big thing to talk about indigenous knowledge. So perhaps we must also leverage on things like this, which we still do have. You know, people still know how to use plant-based resources. You can bungkus your nasi lemak, you know, banana leaf. So we can't lose these things, and perhaps we have to move in the direction where we take advantage, more advantage of the biodiversity that's already around us. Uh, for example, there's it's not just banana leaf which can be used to wrap rice with. Uh, there are many, many different types of leaves you could use. Uh, Daun palas, you could use daun bumban, you can use daun, you could use simple air. So there are many uh, different resources that we could use. And I think we have to become more aware of that and try to integrate these into our cities to make them a lot more ecologically friendly. Hmm. Okay, I, I guess that's a conversation uh, that can continue. Uh, but for now, um, I, I guess we have to stop. Last question, I would just like to know, you know, future projects uh, from you guys moving forward, uh, especially with the pandemic and all, what are some of your future projects uh, that perhaps maybe you can highlight to us? 
for the Rimba project, it, it will come to an end <laughs> this November. But uh, there is, uh, because the, the project, this Rimba project, it's under the university that we focus, we focus on the greening and biodiversity and landscape management uh, in the university. So um, for us, I mean, the, the, the people who run the Rimba project now will, will um, no longer be in service, but there's already like a Rimba project 2.0 I heard of, <laughs> who will continue working in this uh, aspect lah, in biodiversity and landscape management for the university campus. So that, that will be led by Dr. Sarah Abdul Razak. She's an expert in forest ecology, climate change. She was my lecturer actually back, back when I was an undergraduate. So I'm not sure what project they will be doing, but looking at her expertise, um, yeah, there's some, some, something great might, might just happen. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's for Rimba project. Right, right, now, right now, at the moment, we're just completing some uh, projects that needs to that was held back lah during NCO, like tree tagging and creating interpretive materials for for the campus. As for Ruby? Ah, okay, so um, we're actually involved with several different projects. Let's see. Uh, one is that we are with the Habitat Foundation. We are trying to build a showcase garden that showcases indigenous knowledge and it showcases how we can live with uh, biodiversity. So. Uh, we'll be planting a lot of plants which are used by native people and in a way that can be beneficial to the biodiversity around us. So uh, in a way, we want to try to show that it's not an exclusive thing. You can have both culture and nature interacting together at the same time. Aside from that, we are also involved with a few different projects. Um, we are actively supporting the Friends of Bukit Kiara. They are going to be doing uh, many night walks soon because in Bukit Kiara, there are many um, of these terrestrial fireflies. So they are doing a lot of uh, firefly walks and we'll also be participating in uh, the science communication aspect of that. Um, as well as we're also doing regular classes for children. Uh, we call this Backyard Explorers. Uh, we have like a module, several modules, and then um, the kids can just participate in it to learn more about the nature around them as well as uh, science in a very fun and uh, engaging way. Mm, all right. Okay. So for people out there who would like to find out more about um, these things, uh, where can they go to? Uh, so you can follow us on our social media. That's ubi underscore my, ubi underscore my. Um, that's for both uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, right? Um, as well as our website, which is ubi-my.com. So that's where we have a repository of uh, some articles as well as guides to animals and plants that you can find around you. Yeah, for anyone who are in looking at urban wildlife or like uh, urban animals and plants, um, go to this uh, ubi-my.com, ubi-my.com. Uh, it's, yeah, we were doing like an open resource for anyone can simply to refer to and use it. You've been tuning in to I Love KL and that was Shuhada Sapno and she's joined by Tari Gazigo. They're from Urban Biodiversity Initiative or UBI and the Rimba Project and we've been speaking about the relationship between urban spaces and its biodiversity. 
that's all we have for this episode of I Love KL if you miss any part of the show you can check out the podcast at bfm.my slash I Love KL our app which you can find via Google Play and the App Store and also Spotify don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at BFM Radio my name is Hanif Baharudin and you have been tuning in to I Love KL bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city remember to maintain physical distancing and stay safe join us again next week only on BFM 89.9 The Business Station Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.